listen, the Passover wasn't just a nice way to remember Jesus. The Passover was an eternity past, a lesson about Jesus. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Do you know what the communion elements represent and why they're so important for believers? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series titled The Lord's Table. Whenever you partake of the Lord's Table, you're joining in the Lord's Table. He is the host. Paul calls what believers drink in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 the cup of the Lord. It's as if you're enjoying a meal with Christ himself at his table. And here's the really good news. It's a promise by Christ that someday he will sit down with you and we'll have a meal together. That's what communion for the believer is all about. Do you believe that today? Keep all that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. If your relationship with others in the church isn't right, then God isn't happy with your most sincere acts of worship and service. They thought they were meeting to take the Lord's table. They thought they were meeting to honor their Lord. And the Lord, through Paul, says, I don't think so. It's not the Lord's Supper. You may think it is. You may have that in your heart and intention. That may be sincerely what you think you're doing, but it's not to me. Let me ask you this morning as you sit here, is there somebody in this church with whom there's unresolved conflict, with whom there are issues? There's another lesson that comes out of this, and that is your love for others is a test of the genuineness of your faith. There were probably some of these Christians, professed Christians in Corinth, who weren't believers at all. Because the Apostle John makes it clear in 1 John 2. He writes, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the, in the darkness. And he does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Listen, if you don't love people, God's people, then you're not a Christian. So, that was the situation in Corinth. That was the background of what's going on here. And that prompts Paul to step back and remind them of what the Lord's table is truly all about. So that's the corruption of the Lord's table. Paul takes us secondly to the inception of the Lord's table, the institution of the Lord's table. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Now, this same event that Paul's about to unfold for us here is recorded in four places in the New Testament. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, and in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. All four of those accounts are very similar with only very slight nuances and difference. 
But this one here in 1 Corinthians is unique among them because it is the first of those four books probably to be written. It was probably written, this book, around 54 to 55 AD while Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. So although the church of Jesus Christ had celebrated the Lord's table since Pentecost back in 30 AD, this was the first time that our Lord had formally passed down in writing through his apostles what it was all about. This is roughly some 25 years later. As the practice of this had continued to spread through the teaching of the apostles, the details and the background had sort of uh, gradually begun to get a little sketchy. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes out the first inspired version of what happened that night. But how did he know? Paul is an apostle, but he wasn't there. He tells us in verse 23, for I received from the Lord. Paul means that he received, he probably means that he received direct instruction from the Lord himself. Turn over to Galatians. You remember this passage in Galatians chapter 1? Paul talks about how he came to know all that he knew. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which I preached which is preached by me, is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The Lord himself taught me. You say, when and how did that happen? Well, he goes on to explain it down in verse 15, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with the apostles. He sat under the tutelage of Christ himself direct instruction. But at the same time, both Acts and Galatians assert that the other hand-picked apostles all affirmed that Paul was truly an apostle with the right to speak for Christ. Look at Galatians 2 verse 9. James and Peter and John recognized the grace that had been given to me And they said, yes, you're called to go to the Gentiles by our Lord, we to the Jewish people. So it wasn't that Paul just set himself out and said, I had this revelation like some Joseph Smith sort of character. No, he was affirmed by those men who had been with our Lord, handpicked by our Lord as being an actual apostle. And he said, I got this by direct revelation. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. What Paul had received directly from the risen Christ, he had already taught to the Corinthians. When? Well, he was with them for some 18 months, several years before, serving as their pastor. And he taught them then. But now he rehearses it again to them, and he puts it in writing for our benefit as well. Verse 23, here's what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, 
in the night he was betrayed. In other words, he says, the roots of this ordinance, this ceremony that we've been commanded to keep, this ordinance was instituted on the night before our Lord's death. Now, Paul doesn't tell us here, but the other three accounts tell us that Jesus did so as part of the Passover celebration. So let me just briefly take you through that. On Thursday of the Passion Week, Jesus sent two disciples, Peter and John, off to prepare for them to partake of the Passover meal together. He did so so that Judas wouldn't know where they were going, so that he couldn't come that night until after the Last Supper was over. But Peter and John went. They found the man who had prepared an upper room. They found all things already set. Sometime that Thursday afternoon after 3 o'clock, Peter and John would have taken the lamb that had been selected days before to the temple. There they would have stood in line with perhaps hundreds of thousands of other worshipers waiting for the time when they would come to the front. They would lay their own hands on that lamb and then either Peter or John would have taken the knife and slit that lamb's throat. A priest would have been there to catch the blood in a bowl. He would have immediately taken that blood and dashed it against the foot of the altar. Parts of the animal then would have been skinned and the necessary parts put on the altar to burn. The lamb then would have been given back to Peter and John to take back to the place of the upper room where they would have roasted the lamb in a clay oven on a skewer of pomegranate wood. After dark, Jesus and the other disciples came to the upper room. The basic order of events of what happened for that Passover meal have remained essentially unchanged for thousands of years. It was a simple meal to commemorate God's redemption of the nation from Egypt. He killed, you remember, the firstborn son of every Egyptian household, but he spared the firstborn son of all of those who had applied the Passover lamb's blood to the doorposts. That's why it was called Passover. He passed over those houses and let the firstborn sons live. There were six basic foods that were a part of this meal. There was lamb. That was obviously the center point of the meal. There were bitter herbs that were to remind them symbolically of the bitterness of the slavery they endured there. There was unleavened bread to remind them they had to get out in a hurry, no time to put yeast or for time for the bread to rise. There was haroset, which is a mixture of nuts and fruit and wine, a little salad of sorts. There was a raw vegetable that was dipped in a sort of tart sauce. And finally, there was wine. Those six elements. And here's what happened, verse 23. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, Matthew tells us in his account, Jesus did this while they were eating. So while they were eating the lamb, during the main part of the meal, Jesus took some of the unleavened bread that was there on the table. He gave thanks for it. By the way, the Greek word for give thanks is eucharisteo. That's why some, particularly Catholics, call the Lord's table the Eucharist, after the Greek word eucharisteo, to give thanks. Then he broke it after he gave thanks, and then he explained what it meant, which we'll look at together our next time. 
But notice verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper. Wine mixed with water, the rabbis tell us, was an integral part of the Passover celebration. By the time Jesus and his disciples ate this Passover in the year 30 AD, there were a a prescribed number of times that you drank from your cup of wine. Actually, it was probably a single cup that was passed around and shared. Some churches still do that. I've been in services where they have a common um, communion cup from which they drink. But there were a prescribed number of times. You were to drink from the cup four times. That corresponded to four promises that God had made his people when they were slaves in Egypt. Turn back to Exodus chapter six. This is important to understand because it builds the imagery of what Jesus is doing here. Exodus six, here's what the rabbis had taught and what was practiced in the time of Jesus. In Exodus six, verse six, our Lord sends Moses, and I do believe that the one interacting with Moses and the children of Israel was the second member of the Trinity, our Lord himself. And he says, say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Now, in those verses, there are four promises. Promise number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That was the first cup of wine. That promise was read, the cup was served and enjoyed together. Promise number two, I will deliver you from their bondage. Again, the second cup that would have been shared. The third cup, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then finally, the fourth promise, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. It was the third cup that Jesus would have taken at that point in the meal. It was called the cup of blessing. You can see it called that even in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Or it was also called the cup of redemption. It was the cup where God promised to redeem his people. Jesus takes that third cup, the promise of redemption. Verse 25, back in now 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 25 says, in the same way, he took that third cup after supper. That's how we know it was the third cup. Saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now again, next time we'll look at what this cup means. But I don't want you to miss the big picture of what Jesus is doing here. He took two parts of the Passover celebration, the reminder of the physical redemption of God's people from physical slavery. He took two parts of that celebration and he turned them. He turned them into an entirely different kind of remembrance. Now those two elements are to remind his disciples of their spiritual rescue from the slavery of sin and God's wrath. It was all intentional, all carefully measured. Every part of it was a fulfillment of what that all was about in the Old Testament. Listen, the Passover 
wasn't just a nice way to remember Jesus. The Passover was in eternity past a lesson about Jesus. Now it's important to understand that this was not something that only the 11 disciples were to do that night. Judas had already left at this point. This is intended for all Christians, for all of human history. How do we know that? Well, notice twice our Lord gives a command for this to be done. Verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, do this in remembrance of me. The tense of both of those Greek verbs is in the present tense. It speaks of an ongoing practice. Be continually doing this in remembrance of me. But sort of the hammer blow that ends all discussion comes in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, when? Until he comes. This is to be the practice of the church, to be continually remembering me until I return. So clearly then, the Lord's table is an ordinance. It is a ceremony we have been commanded to do. How are we to keep it? Well, just a couple of other details in this passage sort of fill out this, the institution of this ordinance. What about when? When are we to do it? Notice verse 17, when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, when you come together. Clearly, the Lord's table is not intended to be a private expression of worship. While it's not completely prohibited here, certainly that's implied in this and other places in the New Testament. You don't find believers privately taking of the Lord's table together. Why? Because of what it means, which we'll see our next time together. What about how frequently? How often should we do this? And nowhere does the Scripture prescribe how often. The closest our, Lord's get, our Lord gets is in verse 25, as often as you drink. This implies that we will do it often until he comes. In the New Testament church, this was so important, the ceremony, that initially after Pentecost, it was every day. In Acts 2, verse 46, day by day they continued breaking bread from house to house. But by the time 20 years had passed, and you come to the more mature churches in the New Testament, the church was celebrating it on the Lord's Day when they came together. You see that here in 1 Corinthians 11. You see it in Acts 20. So that became the practice. Eventually, of course, if I could fast forward into church history, eventually during the Middle Ages, the Lord's table grew into the the perversion of the Roman Catholic mass, and its meaning was eclipsed and perverted. We'll talk a little bit about that next time. But with the Reformation, the church again began to celebrate the biblical ordinance. And when they did, the frequency varied. For some, it was every week. John Calvin taught it could be celebrated every week, but chose instead to celebrate it less often, about once a month, because he felt there was a temptation for it to become too familiar and to lose its importance. The Swiss reformer, Zwingli, called for observing it quarterly. The same sort of variations in how often continue to today. Each group of elders are responsible to make that decision. In our church, it's once a month. So, 
there's the institution. A command, an ordinance given to the church. This is a ceremony you, believer, are commanded to be a part of by Christ himself. Now, next time, we want to examine what the two elements mean. But I want to finish our time this morning by making sure that you don't miss the forest for the trees. What is this all about? What is the big idea behind the Lord's table? Well, you get the big idea by looking at the three names Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians to identify the ceremony. Look back in chapter 10, verse 21. Talking here about believers going to the idol temples and then wanting to come and worship Christ, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake, watch this, the table of the Lord. The table of the Lord. The table that belongs to the Lord. Look over in chapter 11, verse 20. When you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. The Greek word for Lord's there is crystal clear. It's a word that speaks of ownership, possession. This is the supper that belongs to the Lord. It is a dinner, that's the Greek word, it was the, the night main meal. It is a dinner at which Christ himself is the host. That's the point. It is the Lord's table. He's the host. We're his guests. Now, one other, one other expression rounds this out. Go back to chapter 10 and look at verse 20. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. He says if, if you're involved in eating the food there at the idol temple, it's like you're in communion with the demons. The word is koinonia, in fellowship. You're in communion with the demons. Now, what does that mean? It means the opposite is true. Whenever we take of the Lord's table, it's his table. He's the host. Paul calls what we drink here the cup of the Lord. It's as if we were enjoying a meal together with Christ himself at his table. And here's the good news. It's just a promise that someday we will. It's kind of hard to be real fulfilled with a little piece of cracker and a little swig of grape juice. But understand this. It's a promise by Christ that someday he will sit down with you and with me and have a meal together. Go back to Matthew's gospel. I close with this, Matthew 26, verse 29. Matthew 26, 29. After he'd instituted the, the Lord's Supper, verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until, until that day when I drink it new with you, underline those words, with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus refused to drink the fourth cup. You remember the promise that the fourth cup related to? Back in Exodus 6? Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. Jesus said, I'm going to wait to drink it until I really 
sit down with you in the future and we have a meal together. Every time you and I partake of the Lord's table, it's his table. It's as if we were having a meal with him, but it's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. We'll talk about its meaning. It's, it's more than we could ever imagine, but it's also not as completely fulfilling as it would be, is it? To actually sit down with Christ across the table and literally, physically have a meal with him. When we do it, it's a promise that that too will come. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part two of The Lord's Table. Tom will have part three next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.